0: Repetition is a lost virtue. So when we say mourner's Kaddish, the practice is to say it when you've lost a loved one. And in certain services, it's said two or three times. It's somehow even sweeter. It's like kissing a loved one several times.
1: This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief.
2: On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. Today on In Good Faith, we're talking about the subject of ritual, which to me always seemed very formal, but can be surprisingly intimate. And our little intimate group in the studio today is senior producer Heather Bigley. Hi, Heather. Hello. And producer Peter Ellison. Howdy. One of the most surprising and intimate experiences I had this year was in June in Germany at the centuries-long tradition of the Oberammergau Passion Play. This is a retelling of the final week of the life of Christ. Two and a half hours, you take a dinner break, two and a half more hours, and the whole town is involved. We'll hear from the guest later who actually played Jesus for the second time in his life in this play, Frederick Mayatt. And I have to say that the moment he came on stage in that passion play, I was there with just 3,000 other people in the audience. So that sounds Mm -hmm. like a huge, not intimate experience. And the first appearance of Jesus in the Oberammergau passion play is the moment he rides in on the donkey, the stage is filled with the actual townspeople waving palms I was in tears and I was not even prepared. We're two minutes into the passion play and I was having this really personal moment along with the other 3,000 people I was with. So Peter, as the producer for this episode, did you feel that same tension between is ritual formal or intimate?
3: Yeah. So when we started making this episode, there were a whole lot of different directions it could have taken. And the thing that really struck me kind of looking back at it is there's this beautiful connection between ritual community and art. That's totally captured with talking to Friedrich Mayotte and The Passion Play, but it's also captured by another one of our guests, Mara Menzies, who's a storyteller of both Kenyan and Scottish descent. As you'll hear in her interview, she describes her process of finding, learning, and sharing stories from all around the world. And it's this really beautiful moment of connection that can happen within these frameworks of really old and what could be thought of as dusty rituals, (laughs) but they're just brimming with life. And I really found that beautiful. Some
2: people would think ritual is some old dead thing. We're just reading a script in the book, but Mm -hmm. that is not what I got from these guests. How about you, Heather?
1: A ritual is something you look forward to, It's something that you have expectations about. And then in the middle of it, you know how it's going to go, but it may change. And then afterwards, you can look backwards to it. And so rituals don't have to be esoteric. They don't have to be confusing. They don't have to be formal and removed. They, in fact, can be something that we invest a ton of emotion into. And our investing that emotion is what brings us closer to the whole point of the ritual.
3: I love what you just said about how they, they're kind of these acts of familiarity. We talked with Howard Wettstein, who is um, a Jewish philosopher. He recognizes how his tradition could be conceived of as old and dusty, and he talks about the book that's been kept for thousands of years. But the way he spoke about ritual was in the same breath of, these are habits and patterns that are just like the ones I have constructed with my wife over 40 years. And it's the same feeling there. Right. And that's the relationship that that rituals can nurture with God. And it can be so practical, as
2: high-minded as it is, and we'll get some of that with our guests. But uh, our first guest, Aaron Rose, is in internships for international students here at BYU, helping them acclimate to a new country, sometimes a new language and traditions. And he himself talks about this interesting time he's had getting to know part of his heritage he didn't know, his Latin American heritage, with Dia de los Muertos, which we'll talk about, the Day of the Dead. Something as practical as food and pictures.
4: So, my mom uh, was Mexican-American. She passed about two years ago. Um, And she was born in El Paso in a very Mexican family, in a very Mexican neighborhood. Right um, by the border. Right by the border, right on the border. Uh-huh. And if you've been to El Paso, that you can observe that's very tangible. Um, her family lived in Chihuahua for almost 500 years, um, one branch of her family. And we trace our ancestry through her side back to Northern Spain. But um, we did not grow up celebrating this event in our home. And... Um, As a matter of fact, we didn't even talk about Mexicanness in our home growing up. That's even though her parents had
2: immigrated, that was not part of her life.
4: That was, that soon became not part of her life. And um, during that time period, it was very important for her to assimilate into a more uh, generic American culture. Before she went to school, she remembered speaking Spanish at home as a young child, um, but as soon as she went to school, if she came home and spoke Spanish, her parents said, "No, we don't speak Spanish. You can speak English now." So mm. that was something she had to give up. They were doing this for her, right? So she could yes assimilate. Essentially, yes, and and you see that uh, that's a very common immigration story. Yes, that helps the child, but what do you lose? Yeah, there were some things lost. Definitely, um, we didn't really recognize them though, as as kids growing up, because you you only see what you have in front of you.
2: Did that become important to you at some point? Like, wait,
4: there's this whole other part I need to bring in. Yes, it became very important to me um, as a young person, as a as a teenager, young mm. adult. I I felt a connection very much to that, and I remember sitting around the dinner table with my family and saying, on my ACT, I marked that I was Hispanic. And we heard a fork drop, you know, and and everyone's like, "Oh, that's that's interesting. Why did you decide to do that?" And I said, "Well, I'm I'm very much uh, Mexican American as much as I'm Scottish American. So why not, you know? And here I'm the third child, and nobody had talked about that before. The Dia de los Muertos thing." That came up much later. Mm-hmm. I think it was just before. There's like pre-Coco and post-Coco for people <laughs> understanding this holiday, and I think it was just barely pre-Coco. And um, I would do a small altar or altar at home where you put up your ancestor photos. But how did you know to do this? Um, I I learned about it through my travels and uh. readings. I'm interested in anthropology and and I'm interested in family history and actually my maternal grandmother before she passed she gifted me all of the family records that nobody had really done any research on before wow and she said you're my grandchild that's going to have this it's your responsibility um but i think she saw it in me mm. i think she saw it in me and i felt it in myself even before she mentioned that to me so i felt a i almost felt a responsibility to them as family and and as ancestors that, I don't know, maybe even looked upon me from the other from the other side, you know, as somebody who would not only help get their research done and, and anything that we thought was important for them, you know, that I would also find ways to respect them and remember them. And I felt like this holiday was perfect for that.
2: So I wonder if you can tell me about the first time setting up this altar, maybe tell us what the purpose of it is, and then not having done it was your family scratching their heads like what <laughs> yeah, has happened bit. to
4: Aaron? For me, setting up the altar is the most enjoyable part of having it. Like the setup, it's kind of like um, when people set up the Christmas tree. Isn't that fun? You know what I mean? And it's it's important to people. You know, you pull out your family, yeah. uh, your favorite ornaments. There's a story about them. Uh, there are certain ornaments that maybe belong to certain children so it 's kind of the same feeling um, that when I set up the ofrenda it is um, it is a ritual in itself it 's not just let 's get it up as quickly as possible so that we can stand back and look at it. I love the setup of it because that is a way that 's a way of respect. I see it as something very special, almost sacred, the process of setting it up, and it does evolve. you know oh, now we have more photos, you know we or now we need to fit in this piece over here. It doesn't have to be the same way every every time. And so the first time that I set it up in my own home and we have a small desk near our in our living room, right in our entryway, and I put a cloth over it and I put some of the marigold flowers and their photos and and some food offerings like the pan de muertos. And my my youngest daughter, the first time I did this, she was maybe six or something like that. And so for her which has piqued her curiosity. I think ritual really um, piques young people's curiosity. And so she helped me do this. And she actually drew some special little illustrations that she felt represented Dia de los Muertos and and we hung up the cut paper, the papel picado and the ritual of the action of placing the cloth and placing the photos in a certain way and And putting the food, that was like almost a sacrament in itself to remember them and to see them. And then I would pull my daughter back over and say, okay, can you, do you remember who they are? This is your great-great-grandmother. Do you remember her name? And I do it every year. I'm like, tell me who they are. Do they look forward to that now? I always look forward to it. (laughs) I remember at one point my, my wife saying, now you know we have other ancestors too that are from Scotland and Ireland. And, and I'm like, that's great. And then we should remember them too and we can put them there too. And maybe you've talked about this a little bit, but for f- people who have had this as part of their tradition
2: for generations, what is this doing to spiritually connect them to their ancestors? Obviously they're honoring them, they're remembering them.
4: Is there something beyond that? If you believe in the holiday to its truest point, you actually um, you actually feel a closeness to them because they're going to enter your home. Mm. They're going to visit you. In the US, we have holidays where magical people visit us. Santa Claus, the Easter bunny, <laughs> you know. And I'm not trying to make a mockery of the Dia de los Muertos tradition or any tradition. but But if we can teach our kids that Santa Claus visits us every Christmas, then why can't Some people celebrate Día de los Muertos and also say that their actual ancestors, who are actual family of them, come to visit them in their home. It's kind of a really special thing that I think can make people feel connected to them. Does
2: it make you feel different about yourself to feel connected to people you came from or to have
4: an ancestry? Oh, it makes me feel so rich. It makes me feel so full. It makes me feel that I know them. I feel like I know them. I really do. Thanks to Aaron Rose for speaking with me
2: about his experience with learning about and then doing, physically doing, the ritual of the ofrenda during Dia de los Muertos. That really got me thinking about little traditions in my own family. Like there's this special jello salad that not many of us like, but we have to make it because grandma made it. It's called Golden Glow. Email me for the recipe. You'll be glad you did.
1: What's fascinating about Aaron is his personal tradition inspired him to work with a group of academics here at BYU, and they now host an annual Dia de los Muertos celebration for the campus community.
2: This is In Good Faith. We'll be back with more in a moment. Welcome back to In Good Faith. We're talking today about ritual, and next I get to speak with Howard Wettstein about ritual in Jewish tradition. He returned to Jewish practice after years away from it because of what he called the beauty and the intimacy he found in the ritual. We joined him via Zoom from California.
0: Yeah, I've written about ritual, but someone once said to me, and as I think about it, this resonated, that it's not a term that has a natural Hebrew equivalent in biblical Hebrew. When I'm thinking about this, I think more about our practices than I do about our rituals. And the term in Hebrew that comes sort of close is halakha, which means something like, loosely it means the law, but really it means the way. It comes from the word that, that means to walk. It's the way we walk. So the Bible talks a lot about faith. It uses the Hebrew word emunah, which should be translated mostly as faith, I think. Not belief, not about belief. You can't say in biblical Hebrew, I believe that God exists. There's no natural way to say that. God was like a piece of the furniture of the universe and it wasn't controversial. It's like saying, I believe the weather exists. The biblical way of doing these things has to do with faith, where faith is a kind of openness to God and a kind of loyalty and sense of connection. When God is about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, he says, I can't do this without telling my loyal servant about it, Abraham, who has known me. And the word known is really interesting in Hebrew, as when you speak about Adam knowing his wife. So knowing is not always sexual, of course, but but it's always intimate. Mm-hmm. Abraham is his intimate, and he feels compelled to convey what's going to happen. So it's not knowledge, it's intimacy. It's not knowledge in the sense of cognitive articulation or something
2: like that. When I think of, for me, the word ritual, and then add the word practice, it seems easy in something that might be repeated monthly, yearly, weekly, or every day something that we might repeat some practice that it would be so easy for it to become mundane and no more thought than breathing in and out. So what is it about practice to maintain or create that sense of awe or of emotional or spiritual union or satisfaction?
0: Repetition is a lost virtue. So when we say Mourner's Kaddish, the practice is to say it when you've lost a loved one. And in certain services, it's said two or three times. And somehow the repetition is powerful. Uh, maybe I can explain why it's powerful by an interpretation that I learned about Mortis Kanish when my mother died. It's a strange prayer because it's a glorification of God prayer. But it's said on the occasion of mourning. And now how do those two go together? right? It doesn't say a word about the death of the loved one. Someone said, think of it as comforting God for his loss. That was very powerful for me when I lost a loved one and I felt like there's a tear in the universe. To be able to comfort God for his loss is very powerful. And the fact that it's repeated three times in 15 minutes is somehow even sweeter. It's like kissing a loved one several times. So that's part of the answer of, of, um, to your question about about ritual. But here, here's the other thing, and this is equally, if not more important, if left to my own devices and I was expressing gratitude to God for something very important to me, how would I put it? I might say, thank you. <laughs> right? Uh-huh. I mean, I'd, I'm not a poet, but if you had Shakespeare, that would be serious. And you do have that. You have psalms. My sense of this from being part of the practice and from doing it is different lines will jump off the page at you different days. And if you really invest in the the liturgy, you can't predict where it's going. And every day it's new. So I was in the same synagogue in Jerusalem I was talking about before with this wonderful rabbi and there's a practice on the Sabbath of having three meals a big meal at night and a big meal for lunch the next day and then a smaller meal in the late afternoon as the Sabbath is going away uh, he would do this every week and he'd have a group meeting in the synagogue whoever wanted to come and they'd sing and eat a little bit um, and talk. And it was very beautiful. The light would be going, it'd be getting dark and Jerusalem is magical. And we're sitting in this room where the lights aren't on and it's getting darker and singing. And some guy walked in who was an American and you could tell he wasn't part of the uh, synagogue. He wasn't wearing a head covering of any kind, which is pretty strange in Jerusalem in an Orthodox synagogue. And he spoke like rather aggressively, and he asked, what are these things? What are you doing with all this stuff? Like, why do you care about these things? And so he's really asking, why do you care about eating pork? Why do you care about not turning a light on on the Sabbath? So the rabbi's answer was, it's the way we express our intimacy. And I thought, after about a year of thinking about this, that it's a little like a domestic arrangement with a long-term husband and wife, where you develop all kinds of ways of expressing your intimacy and caring, maybe nicknames, maybe little gestures, maybe things you take care of. And from the outside, they look meaningless, like that's not a big deal, right? But in the relationship, it's a really big deal. And so he was saying some of these practices that aren't about justice and stuff, but little practices that you might think are arbitrary, they're the ways
2: we express our intimacy, that rings so true to me with my wife and I, just our own little rituals that have never been spoken, but right, have just right. uh, have just appeared over the decades, that if right. they stopped, we would wonder what was wrong. Right. Now, <laughs> the, the craziness of my tradition is that it's all written
0: down in a book of rules. Elohim. <laughs> <laughs> Anini Yishecha. It's a poem that starts with, um, And I, my prayer to you, O God. I, my prayer to you, a time of wonder. Maybe it means favorable time, I'm not sure. God, in the magnitude of your loving kindness, answer me. So it's aligned with a lot of, you know, like good poetry with a lot of things that don't exactly come together into a sentence that you could make a request of. But in our synagogue, the rabbi gave a translation of it. And I thought, no, no, you're missing the poetry, right? It isn't like that. It can go lots of different ways. So poetry allows us to strive after God in a way that a straight sentence wouldn't do. Because if you translate that, it becomes, you know, let this be a time of a favorable time for my prayer or something like that. That's the kind of thing I would say if you asked me to talk to God, but it's not what Shakespeare says.
2: <laughs>
0: the word Lord, the word that gets translated as Lord in our Bibles. So in Hebrew, they say Adonai. Adonai is really just an ordinary Hebrew word that means Lord, like my Lord in English in England or something, right? But in many contexts, the, the term Adonai, which is a Hebrew, you could spell it, it's a Hebrew word, replaces the
2: tetragrammaton name of God. Is that a familiar concept, the tetragrammaton? It's used in place of it to to avoid frequent Uh, repetition or having to pronounce the name of God? uh, In a way, the Bible uses this four-letter word Mm -hmm.
0: as a name of God, but the vowels that occur in the Hebrew is kind of not pronounceable. It's like very incoherent. So we have this name of God, that we don't know how to say it, right? And the history or the stories in history are are that the leader of the priests on Yom Kippur in the Holy of Holies would say the name out loud, but no one else could ever say it, okay? Now, we don't know how to say it, and we wouldn't want to say it if we knew how to say it, right? But the practice has become to substitute this ordinary word, Lord, with a capital L, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Think about this. There's all the difference in the world between praying to someone by name and praying to someone, dear Lord, it's a whole different feeling. The second one is more more formal. It's less intimate. I sometimes think it's a little like having a father-in-law who says, call me by my first name, but doesn't tell me what it is. (laughs) In this prayer, (laughs) v'anis filo s'ilochah adonoi, Adenoy is our substitute for the actual name. And that matters because in terms of intimacy, you can feel it, even if you say the other word, you can you can feel you can feel that
2: a name goes here. That was Howard Wettstein. What a delight to speak with him. I could spend a whole afternoon. There was a lot of poetry in there, but this was the interview that to me really started changing my thinking about ritual, or practice as he puts it, where it's not just something that's in a large group where you get lost in a sea of faces, but it's actually very personal in spite of the fact that it could be a group.
3: Next, we turn to an interview with Mara Menzies, a storyteller initially born in Scotland and then raised in Kenya, who now travels the entire world to share stories from Europe, Africa, and the Caribbean. Have you thought of stories as ritual before?
1: I think when you say storyteller in Africa I automatically think oh that must be like a real formal experience she brings that out but she also lets us know no stories are rituals in all
5: cultures to help us learn so I grew up um in a house that we we did not have television Um, The whole time that we were in Kenya, and you know nobody really had TV, so it wasn't really something that we thought about. So we did grow up with uh, with the the tradition of people coming over for dinner. We would go to people's houses, so there was conversation all the time, and part of that conversation obviously included stories as well. So and my mother was a great storyteller. My my grandmother was an amazing storyteller. So. I grew up with these stories and when I moved to Scotland, it disappeared because suddenly we had television so I was consuming stories in a very different way. And it was actually only when I was much older that the stories came back and that was when I was expecting my first child and I wanted you know this child to experience her African heritage um, and I felt the best way to do that was through stories and and suddenly I knew I realized I knew so many of them and I was actually looking for books of Kenyan folk tales and looking for the ones that I knew and then I couldn't find any so I thought wow, I know all these stories so I'm going to write a book. So I did I wrote a book of children's uh, of Kenyan folk tales. And then I, I printed a 1,000 copies and I started to sell them and my, my friends and family bought them and I still had 900 and something, <laughs> that that particular story. And so I would hire halls and I would tell the story, invite people to come and hear the story in the hope that they would buy the book. Um, but I never read from the book. I just, you see the children's faces and their eyes would open wide with wonder. and um, And so you would always tell the story in a different way. And then-
2: Do you see when you travel- Stories that are part of ritual.
5: Yeah, there are different ways that people introduce the story. So in Kenya, for example, we say Hadithi Hadithi which means story, story. And if the audience wants to hear the story, they say hadithi njo, which means story come. These sort of introductions to story is about gathering people. And, you know, we are now centered in the story. And then it's about a relationship between the storyteller and the audience. It's not a performance in the way that we sometimes describe it now. It's, it's really a sharing um, because the way the story is going to be told is absolutely going to be influenced by whoever is sitting in front of you. So in terms of the ritual of story, you know, it's it's a recognition that something is about to take place between two or more people. And then the way the story unfolds, there's almost an expectation of involvement. And sometimes when people, when cultures have stepped outside of that storytelling tradition and practice and ritual, they become very fearful of it. You know, they don't Hmm. sit in the front row because, oh, I don't want to be chosen. I don't want them to pick on me. (laughs) And it's not about being picked on. It's part of that sharing. It's part of that ritual.
2: It's a live event that would never be the same way twice.
5: Never, never. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
2: Because of the stories that you tell, you make use of stories from different African faith systems or traditions. And I wonder if you could tell me about some of those.
5: So, of course, in Kenya, we have about 44 different ethnic groups. And these are very different. It's not just that the dialect changes, it's whole languages change. Everybody has their own cultural beliefs, their own faith systems. And so, you know, for example, the Gikuyu, they have um, the the god is called Ngai and there's the creation story of the mountain and the cows were brought down. And then there's Mumbi, who is the mother of the Gikuyu. So there are seven different Gikuyu. It's broken down into sort of sub-tribes. So Mm -hmm. she is the mother of all of them. And then her daughters ended up spreading out and they were the mothers of each group. And then my mother is from the Baluya, the Baluya people who are very much on the west coast close to the Ugandan border um, and so they have their own so you find different ways of, of retelling these stories as I began to develop as a as a more professional storyteller and you go to different festivals and you're travelling around and you're hearing more stories then I started to hear the stories of the Orisha from western Nigeria from the Yoruba people and I was in Cuba uh, a few years ago and I encountered Santeria for the first time mm. and Santeria is this fusion of Catholicism and Ifa. And then I discovered the journey of these stories is as interesting as the stories itself. So for the Yoruba who have Ifa as their faith system, I guess the closest I can describe is like the Greek gods. You know, you've got the creator at the top, Oludumare, and then you have the Orisha. And there are hundreds of Orisha, the Orisha of war, the Orisha of children, the Orisha of disease, the Orisha of beauty, and so on and so forth. During the transatlantic slave trade, when they were taken from Nigeria to the New World, they were not allowed to practice their faith. So what they did is that they hid the Orisha behind the Catholic saints. Mm. So when they were praying to the Virgin Mary, in reality, they were praying to Yemaya, who is the mother of the sea. And so all these Orishas were hidden behind the saints. So then you have this syncretic faith santeria, which is still drawing on a lot of these really ancient stories, hundreds of years old from this Nigerian faith system. So I, I learned quite a few stories when I was in Cuba. A festival director from Nigeria heard me telling the story, one of these stories of an Orisha called Ochosi, the god of the Orisha of the hunt, and then invited me to tell it in Nigeria. So I was very excited because I've never been to Nigeria before. And then suddenly I was standing on this stage at this Arts and Book Festival, all these Yoruba people in front of me. And then suddenly I was panicking because I thought, you know, we live in a world of cultural appropriation and there's this sacred story. I'm Kenyan, I'm Scottish, I've got nothing to do with Nigeria. And I thought, I don't know how this is going to go down at all. I don't know if they're going to be insulted or annoyed.
2: How did you introduce it?
5: I just told the story. I said, this is a story that I found in in Cuba and it's an Orisha story. So I said, you know, I hope that I'm able to do the story justice. (laughs) And so I told hold a story. But you know, whenever you're telling or whenever I tell a story that is from a culture that is not mine, I go beyond just the story that I've heard. You don't just regurgitate words. It's good to have an understanding, a wider understanding of the, the cultural context in which that story comes from, because that gives it authenticity in a way or as much authenticity as you're able to to give it and and if I felt I wasn't able to do that then I would not tell the story. Mm. So I had done my research and and it's little things that you know like for example in there's Nigeria, Ghana, Senegal, Gambia, they all have this war as in who has the best jollof rice. You know, the Nigerians will claim that they do, <laughs> the Ghanaians will refuse and say absolutely not ours is the best. So I because I know little things like that I threw that into the story as well, you know. So the it's a Nigerian story and I, I'm with these Nigerian people. So in the story, you know, when I was talking about the food and the mother said, I'm going to make the best jollof rice, none of that Ghanaian nonsense. And so, of course, they erupted with laughter. And so there's a recognition that, OK, this storyteller has actually taken care to do a little bit more than just tell a story. But the interesting thing is that they had actually lost that story. It was a lost story. So in the new world, Ochosi is very well known as one of the major orishas. But where I was in Abiokuta, nobody had heard of Ochosi. So somewhere along the lines, gods kind of lose reverence if they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. You know, people's loyalties will switch. And then, so this was like taking a story back home, in a sense. So it was a really lovely moment for me. Wow! Yeah.
2: Nice full circle for, mm. and probably very exciting for people to hear a story in a tradition they're familiar with, but this other character they don't know.
5: Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And, you know, I really think that people need to understand the power of story and the value of story, because whatever situation we're in, stories are are the things that give us the tools to get us out of any difficult situations, Um, any family difficulties, whatever our economic situation is. These stories actually do have huge power to help us reconsider and reevaluate where we are and maybe give us advice in terms of how we can get ourselves out. You know, it's it's not just about this is what happened. There's, it's, like it's human relationships and um, and connections and everything about how we live in this planet and how we move across the planet is, is rooted in something far more complicated than we can understand. So my grandfather was a messenger boy for the district commissioner. And, you know, the Luya people, it's a girl is a girl like a cow is a cow. She's mm. going to be a wife and a mother and nothing else. And all the attention is towards the boys and develop, developing them into whatever they need to be. Um, But when he was working, he was like seven, eight, nine years old, and he saw that all the work that was being done, like speeches being written, the research that was being carried out, reports, was the wife of the colonial, of the district commissioner. And he thought, oh. So girls are able to learn. You know, it was outside of what he was used to. You know, his experience is that this is what girls are and this is what boys are. Um, And this was challenging to him. So when he married my grandmother and they had three daughters, he sent them all to school. (laughs) And uh, it caused a big problem in his family because they were annoyed that he was wasting money sending these girls to school and he at least should be educating the boys. And ultimately, my grandmother came back home one day and she found his body. He had been poisoned by his family because there was such a rift now. And then and there's um, a tradition called wife inheritance, where if your brother passes away, then you assume responsibility for his affairs, which mm. also includes the wife and the children. So she was now destined to marry his brother. And she thought, nope. That's not what I want to do. And my grandmother was a village girl. She'd not been educated. She'd really never left the village. Her world was tiny. But she decided to run away with her three daughters. And she walked uh, 40 kilometers to a nearby town. And then she couldn't afford them because she had no money, no job. She didn't know anybody. So she put my mother, who was the oldest in an orphanage, and the orphanage was run by Scottish nuns. So my mother grew up in this orphanage, and then she was sponsored by a Scottish woman to go and study in Scotland. And then she met my father in the 1960s. So, you know, there's, it's a very uh, complicated affair, and I wanted to draw light on...
2: Boy, what a story, though, for the... Several generations back, I feel like I want to see the miniseries of your life, Mara, and of your ancestors.
5: <laughs> I come from amazing people, yes. <laughs> I mean, my grandfather was a real feminist, and then my grandmother was just such a brave and courageous woman. And I feel it's really important that we do find out stories about who we come from. And if there's something there we don't like, well, we are not them. You know, now is our chance to change the story. And if it's something that is really good and positive, then let us honor that and carry it on.
2: That was Mara Menzies, the storyteller with roots in both Scotland and Kenya, talking about the importance of storytelling as ritual and practice to pass on values and lessons from the past. And what I really got from that whole announcement of a storyteller saying, story, story, and then the people agreeing, yes, it's story time, tell us. Yeah. It's the intentionality of it. Instead of we just launch into a story somewhere, randomly, that this becomes, it becomes a ritual because they've all said the words that mean we agree to this moment together. Right.
1: It's not just someone nattering on in the kitchen, (laughs) (laughs) uh, but it's literally like, I've got something to say. We want to hear what you have to say.
2: And we were really lucky to get to speak to Mara as she was in town with our sister show, The Appleseed, here at BYU Radio. This is In Good Faith, back with more in a moment. Welcome back to In Good Faith. Today's episode, we're talking about ritual.
3: Our last interview today is with Friedrich Mayett, an actor who has appeared in three productions of the Oberammergau Passion Play, first as St. John, and in the two most recent productions as Jesus. He is also an art director and media officer for the Volkstheater in Munich.
2: Friedrich talks about how a ritual can strengthen a community in this case, not a congregation, an entire village whose life is built around this once-a-decade Oberammergau passion play. And he tells us how it all began.
6: It was during the Thirty Years' War. The Swedish troops came to our region and they brought the Black Plague with them. And there was one man in a neighbor village working. He went home to see his family and he brought the Black Plague into the village. And so within a few weeks, we assumed that one third of the population of Oberammergau died in 1633. So our ancestors, they didn't know about diseases in, in that way. And so they made a vow. If God takes this disease away, the Villagers will play the last days of Jesus Christ every 10 years and the Chronicles say that from this day no one died anymore and so this tradition is held till today that we play the passion play every 10 years. We only missed it twice. So,
2: What awareness did you have of the passion play as you grew up? Something that happens every 10 years, that's a big change <laughs> for a young person.
6: If you grow up in the other, the Passion Play is always a big issue because uh, it's something so special and it's so important for the community and in the village. When I grew into the Passion Play, I was uh, a young grown-up and, and that was a very special time for me, the first time participating in the Passion Play.
2: Are you aware of your ancestors back through the years being part of the Passion Play and how long your family has lived in the area?
6: So my uh, great grandfather, he moved to Oberammergau in 1890. And he was a teacher at the local woodcarving school because Oberammergau is also very famous for the for the woodcarving. So my yes. father is also a woodcarver. So my family always has been in, in the passion play, in the choir. My, my grandmother has been in passion play, but I was the first person who had like a major role in, in the play. So when I was playing in 2000, Disciple John, and uh, when I got this role.
2: In 2010, you played the role of Jesus for the first time. And is this something people audition for, like they want a particular role, or everyone just shows up and the director picks who will do what?
6: The director it's Christian Stückel. And he did some auditions always, but it's more for those who are younger because he knows the older ones very well. And so he has auditions for the 30 years old and younger. So, And so there you can go and you can talk and you you learn some texts. Sometimes it's, it's, it's a Shakespeare text or something. And so he, he sees if you can speak in a good way, if you have a good voice, if you have talent in acting. But it's not an audition that you said today, we are looking for Jesus, tomorrow we look for Judas, the next day for Mary. So it's not like this because it's if you want to take part in the Passion Play, you fill out a form one or two years before the Passion Play is. Because if you're born in Obamagow, you're allowed to take part in Passion Play or if you live there for 20 years. So this is why... Almost half of the population of Oberammergau is involved in the passion play. So we have 5,000 inhabitants in the village and around about 2,400 were in the passion play. And so the director has to make the the, the cast. And you're not asked if you want to play Jesus and you're not asked if you want to play Mary or another role. The director makes the cast and then there's one day when the cast is announced publicly uh, in front of the theater. And uh, that's, of course, a very special day. Everyone is really ex- excited or oh, who will play the big roles, who will be in the choir, who will be the disciples. And for me, I never had the wish to play Jesus. I was so close to those persons who portrayed Jesus in the Passion Play in 2000. And I had a, so much respect of, of this role. And I never imagined myself being on stage in this role. And I was really Surprised when I was elected for the Passion Play in 2010, and I was very happy and proud. And but when I woke up on the next day, uh, I felt also a lot of pressure on my shoulders. You can imagine. Right. And, yes.
2: Of all the characters to play, I, I was curious if you feel any pressure to live a really good life outside of the play because people will say, "Oh, this is the guy playing Jesus."
6: <laughs> you live in a village, you know, everyone and know stories of everyone. And I always try to, to live a good life. And so, but in Wamaga, it's like, sometimes when you go to a, to a barbecue in the evening, then you sit next to a kaiaphas, you sit next to a pilot or to a Judas and someone is a high priest. And so So it's very common in our village. So it's not, sometimes you don't even talk about which role you have or which role you have because it's so clear. It's more when you go outside, when you meet people in in, in Munich or elsewhere, they're really interested and they have a lot of questions about and how it is. But in the village, it's quite normal.
2: That is a a huge ritual for the the village that so many people are involved and that the entire world People are coming from everywhere every 10 years. Do you feel like the life of Oberammergau is built around that?
6: Yeah, definitely. So after 400 years of passion play in in Oberammergau, it is somehow in our DNA. And I saw this year with my two boys, um, the older one, he was eight years. He, He was the servant at the Last Supper, the younger one, Lorenz. He's four years old. And how they grow into this and how they take part in the, in the community of, of Amagau and how they suddenly talk to older ones and they have friends they are perhaps five six years older and and so you see how important the passion play for our cultural life in, in the villages and of course it's only every 10 years but also in the years in between we do a lot and we have a rich cultural life in in, in such a small village so our conductor, Markus Swink, uh, he works a lot with the choir. He has several several choirs and uh, with the orchestra. The director, Christian Stückel, he starts theater with the youngest ones in, in, in the village. And he does Christmas plays with the six, seven, eight, nine years old. And that's because we want to have uh, good actors, good singers, good musicians. We have a lot of classical instruments are learned boys go to the choir very early. So my son, he started in the choir in, in first grade and half of the boys in his, uh, in, in his class go to the choir and they really like it. And in other villages, they go to play soccer uh, more and people, they really plan their family. Uh, when they get kids, they say, oh, perhaps after the passion play because then it's easier to to be in the play. So <laughs> it's really, it has a big influence, passion play on our lives.
2: From 2010 to 2020, and then having a cancellation because of COVID, postponed for two years. How was the experience different in 2022 than back in 2010?
6: We were right eight weeks before the, the opening night in, in March 2020, when the Passion Play was postponed due to COVID. Uh, so everyone was so unsecure what, what it is, how dangerous is it? What, will it do to our lives and of course then you thought about the roots of the passion play Black Plates 400 years ago and how people reacted and exactly the same happened 100 years ago in 1922 due to the First World War and, and the uh, Spanish Flu the passion play was also postponed from 1920 to 1922 mm. and for me compared the passion play uh, 2010 to 2022. It was, of course, I, I was older. In 2010, I played Jesus the first time, and uh, now, then 12 years years later, I had the feeling that I'm more in the role, that I'm more secure, that I can, that the words flow through my body somehow, and and uh, so I I was more confident in in a way, and so I also could enjoy more being on stage, playing Jesus on stage and. I was really happy also that I, was, that I had the chance to play in this role a second time.
2: So many people come and they bring, when they come to see the play, they bring their own faith and their own life experience that Jesus is the central figure in their life. I'm wondering what the effect of the Passion Play is on the people who come. What do you
6: see? Yeah, that's the pressure I had in 2010 when I was elected. I had I, I would think about oh, everyone comes to Obama and everyone has his own view and on Jesus in his head and how you can fulfill this and it's not possible and and then you think oh how can you show God on on stage? That's not possible. I had a lot of thoughts about this role and, and then. And we went to Israel, visited the holy sites we had we watched some movies about jesus and and you have to find your own way to portray Jesus on stage and so for me, it was very important to do it in a way that that you reach the people of today and Of course, what we are doing Obamaga, we don't say this is exactly how it was two thousand years ago because even in the gospels it the view on the story is slightly different. And what we do is an interpretation of, of the story. And so I played Jesus on stage, I think over 100 times with the two passion plays together. And when you're on stage and you, you say the words every day, uh, so you really, Know the words more and more and more, and then you think about what he wanted from us, and then of course you you try to live this in your normal life more and more, and of course it's it not always possible. And so they they sound easy, but they are so hard to <laughs> live in your regular life. So it's like love your enemies or treat others as you wanted to be treated. So so if everyone would live like this. We would live in paradise in our world. In 2000 years, it's so difficult to to really live those simple teachings he gave us. But and this is what I think about. Now you have to try it and you have to do it in your daily life. And just the small things are so important in, in your life. But yeah, and the words he said, they're so relevant and even more relevant in our world today. Yeah, he had a lot of answers to the problems we have today.
2: Do you have a favorite moment from the Passion Play?
6: A lot. Of course, for me, always the most emotional moment was in the first scene, riding on the donkey when the children are singing. And that was always very touching for me. So because we have the feeling that half of the village is on stage.
2: Once again, I have to ask myself how something as big as 3,000 people in an audience and hundreds of people and horses and camels and sheep on stage (laughs) can feel intimate. And yet it did in this passion play. And in speaking with Frederick, the idea that this whole community of 5,000 people is bound together because they do this every 10 years And at least 50%, 2,500 people in the town are either on stage or running the technical aspects or in the orchestra, the choir, feeding all the people who come every day, a new group of 3,000 people. He really talks about it as a moving and a binding moment where everybody Mm -hmm. is bound. This is what we do here in our town and this is who we are. And I think we all have these little moments this is who we are.
3: There's a very common ritual in my tradition. It's a type of sacrament, communion. And the way it's done is pretty utilitarian in the sense that it's a simple ceremony done by ordinary people in ordinary clothing. Uh, there's not very much pageantry or like celebration. And that's confused me for a long time. But I think something that I've learned over the course of working on this episode is I can let the ritual fall away and see the person behind it. And it becomes an interaction between a community and between this community and God. It's not just clothes or special cloths. It's, there's something behind that.
2: How do I feel that essence or that spirit in me?
1: One of the things I love that Wettstein kept saying was, you know, if I were just to say thank you, or if I were just to say this, I would say, Mrah. but Shakespeare or the Psalms, we have all this beautiful language mm. that's been written for us that we can use ourselves and that, in fact, teaches us how to say in a really beautiful way, thank you, or I need this, or you are my God and I praise you, right? You know, my husband is Korean American and when you're passing something, especially in certain rituals, when you're passing something as a younger person to an older person, you use both hands.
3: Mm.
1: And it's a sign of respect and it's a sign of love,
3: right? When I first started emailing with Howard and, you know, reading his work, I was expecting a lot of philosophy, but we got to the interview and I'm sure you can vouch for this, Steve. We got poetry instead. Mm. And he, he just has a passion for the beauty and the art of ritual and of ruling a person in relationship with God. And That is what I'm really taking away out of this episode. Not stuffy.
1: Insider and I'm an outsider because I don't know the ritual. Yeah. Thanks to Aaron Rose, Howard Wettstein, Mara Menzies, and Frederick Mayette. This episode was produced by Heather Bigley, Peter Ellison, with sound design by Daniel Phillips. In good faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. And if you enjoy the show, be sure and leave a comment or review where you get your podcasts and help spread the word. You can find us on Twitter at InGoodFaithPod or on Instagram and Facebook at InGoodFaithPodcast. In good faith is a production of BYU Radio.